Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. And I'm Garrett Dirkmont. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, part two, Doctrine and Covenants, section 136. So again, we're glad to have Garrett with us. Um, there aren't very many people on this planet who have read and studied this time period more than, than you've well, immersed in. I'm sure there are some that are far more uh, capable, but I'll do my best. <laughs> it's, it's a pleasure to have you, you here and to share your expertise. Section 136, as you, as you jump in, this is very unique because this isn't Joseph Smith. Yeah, this is a, a, a big deal in the Doctrine and Covenants because it's the first revelation that will be canonized that is not from Joseph Smith. I mean, we have other things from Joseph that will be canonized in the 1876 Doctrine and Covenants, like a letter that he wrote or a sermon that he gave, but this is not Joseph Smith at all, right? So this is, it's, it's from a, another prophet. And so uh, demonstrates that the, that the Doctrine and Covenants isn't just the book of Joseph Smith's revelations, it's the, the revelations from God to his church. So as we get ready to dive into section 136, there is a lot of history that we need to kind of compress and, and overview to help make sense here. So episode number one this week, we covered the events of June 27, 1844 with the martyrdom of Joseph which now creates a whole series of events long before we get to section 136, back in Nauvoo. Yeah, and just like with DNC 135, there were both internal and external forces that led to the murder of Joseph and Hiram Smith. Uh, the, there's going to be both internal problems in the church and external forces that are going to lead to the saints' expulsion from not only Nauvoo but from the United States in general. Um, the, the, the first, of course, the most pressing is that there's a succession crisis. Uh, who's so going to be in charge? Who's going to be in charge? Joseph had sent most of the Quorum of the Twelve out on electioneering missions and preaching missions, and so most of them are not in Nauvoo at the time of, of the martyrdom. And uh, one of the ones who was there, John Taylor, isn't exactly in his best prime with half of his hip shot away, right? So, um, the, the, the apostles are recalled, but um, it's very obvious very early on that there's going to be a difference of opinion of who is to lead the church. Um, the, the, the one that we know most about is Sidney Rigdon. Sidney Rigdon, who was a member of the First Presidency, it's important to note that the First Presidency is, it, it's, it's different than what it is today. Uh, today, the idea to you that a member of the First Presidency could apostatize is a that's a pretty big deal, right? Uh, um, one of the reasons why it, it's different is that in these earlier days, the first presidency were drawn from people that were actually outside of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. So you have members of the first presidency like John C. Bennett, who's not an apostle, you know, thankfully, uh, but uh, today you wouldn't have that at all, right? Today uh, you, you have the, the first presidency is drawn from the apostles. So Sidney Rigdon is not, he's not an apostle, he's, he's, he certainly has a lot of power in the church. He is going to 
declare himself uh, to be essentially the protector of the church, a guardian of the church, with the idea being that when Joseph Smith's son becomes old enough, that he would then take over the church, that the, that, that the church was to pass uh, its authority essentially in a, in, a, in a patriarchal fashion from father to son and on down. And there are lots of Latter-day Saints who, even if they don't back Rigdon's claim, feel similarly that Joseph's you know, we should honor Joseph by sending this with his children. Um, uh, there was already some of this idea inculcated among members because the office of patriarch, which was a highly elevated office, had only gone through the, the, the Smith family. You know, it had been Father Smith had been the patriarch, and then Uncle John Smith had been the patriarch, and shortly after this, after Joseph and Hiram's murder, William Smith is going, and, and Hiram had been, I mean, so it had been a Smith kind of family um, calling, and, and so there's certainly some feeling of that. Um, I think most Latter-day Saints know that there's a meeting that's held in August, and Sidney Rigdon presents his case for why he should be the guardian, and and Sydney hadn't even been in Nauvoo when no. this was happening. He, no, he was in Pennsylvania. He's gone to Pennsylvania, <laughs> and when he finds out this happened, he, he, he rushes yep. to Nauvoo. And he, and he gets there before some of the other saints do. And in fact, when Brigham Young arrives, when you're, when you're looking back on history, it's easy to know what's going to happen because you already know the answers. But when you're, when you're at the time period, you don't actually know. I mean, Brigham Young doesn't know when he first arrives back in Nauvoo that Sidney Rigdon's going to claim to be the new leader of the church. I mean, as far as he's assuming, well, the, Joseph gave the keys of the kingdom to the Quorum of the Twelve. People will recognize that, and Joseph and, and, and the Quorum of the Twelve will now lead the church. Rigdon makes this public uh, uh, claim for this, and then Brigham Young will, will speak after him. Um, one of Sidney Rigdon's uh, arguments is that he is a member of the First Presidency and therefore equal in authority in the power of the, of the presidency, and therefore he should have the power. He's undermined a great deal in that argument because Amos Lyman, who is also a member of the First Presidency, speaks on behalf of Brigham Young and says, well, I'm a member of the First Presidency too, so I have just as much power as you do, and I think Brigham Young's really Brigham's got the, <laughs> right. the keys. So, um, Although we talk a lot about that day, especially because, you know, it's really when the mantle falls upon Brigham Young, very few Latter-day Saints in Nauvoo actually follow Sidney Rigdon. Uh, several dozen, maybe in, into the hundreds, it's hard to tell because people aren't writing letters saying, by the way, I'm following Sidney Rigdon. Um, but he leaves and he goes to Pennsylvania where he'll eventually establish a church. And I mean, it's, it's kind of it's sad in a way, I guess, but he actually gets excommunicated from his own church. Um, so... That, that's a rough one, right? I mean, uh, if, you, if you, you, you found your own church and then you get excommunicated from it. But um, the other problem is that there is an, an, an elder in, uh, uh, well, he, he's in Illinois and Michigan and, and various places, but he claims to have a letter from Joseph saying, hey, if anything happens to, to me, you're the new head of the church. Uh, his name's James Strang. Strangism is actually going to be far more prevalent among people. Strang is going to claim that he's receiving revelations. He's going to claim that he's translating, he's more, translating of the Book of Mormon, yeah, more of the Book of Mormon. He's going to, he's going to claim uh, that all kinds of these, these powerful, miraculous events. Um, but for both of them, one of the, the, the draws for both of them for members of the church is Brigham Young is still determined to see that all of Joseph's doctrines that he taught are still being taught. So we're still having a temple endowment. 
We're still teaching work for the dead. We are still teaching eternal marriage uh, and well, at least plural privately, marriage. plural marriage, right? Well, uh, and we're going to leave the country. You are, go- you are about to walk a thousand miles if, if this is the person that you're following. And so there are a lot of people who gravitate primarily to James Strang and, then, and, then, uh, and some to Sidney Rigdon's denomination. There are other offshoot groups that happen as well. But that's what's going on internally. Externally, while the Latter-day Saints have uh, a brief period of time, it's almost like Governor Ford you know, realized how terrible the event was. For a few months, he actually starts backing the Saints again. But by January of 1845, the Illinois legislature has repealed the Nauvoo Charter. What does that mean? It means the largest city in Illinois doesn't actually exist as a city. They can't collect taxes. They don't have a police force. They don't have a city council. They are unincorporated Hancock County. Well, it it, it means that they have much harder time defending themselves. Um, And by September of 1845, anti-Mormonism is such that anti-Mormons are regularly publishing in the newspapers that they want to exterminate the Mormons from the county. Now, that, again, is not a light thing when you've experienced what happened in Missouri. You you don't hear someone say, we are going to exterminate the Mormons and think, well, they must be talking rhetorically because they weren't talking rhetorically in Missouri. And uh, by September, you have uh, Edmund Durfee is uh, a Latter-day Saint who the, 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 the idea of the mob was they would start burning and attacking outlying Mormon settlements. They would go in, rouse the Mormons in it, kick them out into the cold, and then burn their house and their barns and their fields down. And uh, with Durfee, they they actually shoot and kill him and then burn his his, his stuff down. And so this is not just theoretical violence. It's actual violence. And even non-Latter-day Saint newspaper editors are reporting on this saying, this is really bad. This is an embarrassment to the United States. But Brigham Young's made the determination that they're going to leave. They, they look at a lot of different places. Uh, they, they look really closely at going to the Republic of Texas, which was an independent country at the time. The president of the Republic of Texas had actually invited them to come. Joseph had looked into that while he was alive. But once Texas is annexed to the United States, they drop that as an option because they feel like they need to get out of the United States. In the United States, whether it was in New York or Ohio, or Missouri, or Illinois, no matter where they went, even if it was a less populated part of the state, like Western Missouri and Western Illinois, it didn't matter. Because as a, as a persecuted minority group, as a hated minority group, it was always more politically expedient to, to be against them than for them. So their plan is to go somewhere else, and they settle on thinking on the Rocky Mountains. They plan to leave in the, the, the spring of 1846. They plan to leave in April or May, which is would be that's intelligence. The, that's the time <laughs> that, to leave. That's when you should start in your journey west. Um, but they actually leave with an even more bitter taste in their mouth than they, had, than they had anticipated. So Thomas Ford, the governor of Illinois, who many Latter-day Saints do not like because of his involvement in Joseph's murder, um, he's not done yet hurting the Latter-day Saints. He will... Um, uh, lie to the Latter-day Saints. He'll lie to Brigham Young and to the sheriff of the county and tell them that the federal government has decided to intervene and that they are sending an army to Nauvoo and they're going to arrest all of the apostles and they're going to gather up a bunch of the other saints and they're going to prevent them from leaving the country. Well, 
this this is terrifying to to the Latter-day Saints. And imagine how frustrated they were. For a decade, they have been begging the U.S. government to get involved to help them from their lands that have been stolen, people that have been murdered indiscriminately in Missouri and now in Illinois. And now finally the government's going to get involved. But to their detriment, it is an exasperating thing. But fearing, because Thomas Ford, and I'm not just saying Thomas Ford is a liar. Thomas Ford brags about being a liar. In his book, he writes in 1854, he's quite proud of himself. He's, he's excited about the fact that he lied so well um, uh, that, that the Latter-day Saints, um, seeing no, no option, realize they have to leave in the dead of winter. And so they leave in February rather than waiting until it was spring. They leave before they're totally ready. They leave when the weather is, of course, atrocious. And um, it makes a much more disorganized departure than they had intended. And Brigham Young had wanted a very organized departure. One thing that he was very adamant about, and you'll get to this in DNC 136, and the Lord will speak this as well. He did not want anyone left behind because they were poor. He did not want the price of discipleship to be whether or not you owned a wagon, that that the people who had means had better sacrifice and get every believer out of there than anyone who wanted to believe. But this hurried nature of departure meant that people left in staggered stages because they they weren't, I mean, if any of you have ever had to leave on a, on a major trip just, you know, a week uh, long that you had to leave six hours before you thought you had to, you don't have anything when you get there. Imagine doing that here where they're planning to walk 1,000, 1,500 miles um, uh, to, to, it, through a trackless uh, wilderness, essentially. So they, they get to um, the other side of Iowa after incredible suffering, and um, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of Latter-day Saints who die along the way. Um, because they leave in winter, it means that they're only partway through Iowa when the early spring rains come and the snow melt come. And so it turns Iowa into a giant mud bath. I mean, just, it, 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 it's, it, yes, that, to, let me put it this way. It takes the saints longer to get across Iowa than it will take them to get from Iowa to Salt Lake. That's, that tells you how horrific that, that 1846 was. And even when they get to winter quarters, when they get to the other side, uh, they get to the Missouri River, it, it is, a, is a terrible time. Um, th there's been a lot that's happened in the interim as they're crossing uh, Iowa. The United States government has shown up, but not with an army to kill them, but to invite them to give volunteers to fight in the Mexican War that has is, 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 uh, uh, lately broken out. And they send over 500 uh, men and, and, and women, actually, uh, several dozen women, as uh, volunteers to fight in the Mormon battalion. And that greatly reduces their manpower. And so the idea is that they're going to have to wait there in winter quarters. So, so you have a lot of things that are going on that have created some disjointedness. You've had everybody has left everything they knew in Nauvoo. The cross of, uh, crossing of Iowa for that year was horrific. Dozens of people have lost family members. They are, they're in the middle. It, it is hard to describe if you've never been 
to western Iowa or eastern Nebraska in the wintertime, it's hard to know how cold it is. Wilfred Woodruff is recording in his journal. I don't know how accurate his thermometer is, but during the time period we're talking about that this revelation is received, he is regularly writing, thermometer at negative 10 below zero today. Thermometer at negative 15 below zero today. It is devastatingly cold. And um, as you might imagine, with how much struggle there had been, with how difficult things, with how much sacrifice people had made, and with the fact that people are readily, steadily dying here in this encampment, that people could start to murmur and start to say, well, maybe Brigham Young isn't the prophet who's supposed to be leading us. Maybe, maybe we should just go back. And some people did. Some people did and left and went back. Wilford Woodruff records in his journal just before this revelation. This revelation is received in January, uh, January 14th of 1847. In December of 1846, Wilford Woodruff uh, uh, records a meeting that's held where Brigham Young outlines some of the problems. Because it's kind of been this disjointed removal of the saints, uh, you have uh, a lack of organization, you have crime, you have people committing all kinds of sins, and Brigham Young lists them off to him. You must stop your lying. You must stop your thieving. You must stop your whoredoms. And then, uh, in a very Brigham Young-esque fashion, says, Brother Joseph bore with you these things because he was a very merciful man, but I will not. <laughs> uh, 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 he goes on to simply say that if we are going somewhere to create the kingdom of God, we can't do it with these people. We can't do it with people that are going to sin, with people who are going to attack their neighbors, who are going to lie and backbite. And so it, it, this is a, a really difficult time. As a historian, if you were a dispassionate, non-Latter-day Saint historian, you would view this winter of 46-47 as the make or break point of the movement of Latter-day Saints because it could have easily descended into, into chaos because of, of how many trials they were having. So it's in that context that Brigham Young receives this revelation. Yeah, this is, this is beautiful. The camp of Israel right there on, in winter quarters when verse 1, the word and will of the Lord concerning the camp of Israel in their journeys to the west. To me, the most beautiful part about that isn't the fact that we get this revelation it's not to show that Brother Brigham's in charge. To the, me, the Lord's in charge. <laughs> it's that the Lord's in charge, <laughs> and, and he's now charge. going to yes. speak through yeah. Brother Brigham instead yeah. of through Brother Joseph. That to me is just—it's profound that it's not the Church of Joseph, and it's not the Church of Brigham, and it's not the Church of any subsequent prophet. It's the Church of Jesus Christ, and He's giving His will through this this man at that time in that location, in those very trying circumstances. Very difficult. Listen to the knowing what you know now about what's been going on, listen to verse 2 in that context. Let all the people of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and those who journey with them be organized into companies with a covenant and a promise to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord our God. This isn't a suggestion. It's you have to covenant and promise you're going to do this as we organize you into companies, and then he gives this, this organization structure of in companies of hundreds and with captains of fifty and captains of tens, and you've got a president and two counselors at their head. There's, there's this very 
very specific hierarchical structure. He's using Captain Moroni's, uh, uh, you know. He's, <laughs> right? he's, I'll give a Captain of a hundred and, uh, and and also the 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 fact that he is the Lord is is telling them that they need to make this renewed covenant to who they are. One of the things that Brigham Young said in his December sermon was that many of the Latter-day Saints were actually justifying committing adultery, uh, stealing from their neighbor um, because of all the horrible things they'd been through. That, that well, sure, I might have committed adultery, but I also lost my house back in Nauvoo. So I think we're even God kind of thing. And, and so I think you also see some of that come out in the Revelation as well. Yeah. So after he gives some dis- uh, direct instructions regarding um, the teams and the seeds and the farming utensils in order to plant the spring crops and making sure that we're, we're not leaving the poor behind, it comes out as well. Listen to what he says in verse 17 and 18. Go thy way and do as I have told you, and fear not thine enemies, for they shall not have power to stop my work. Zion shall be redeemed in mine own due time. Have you noticed how God's prophets, even in the, the most terrible circumstances, I mean, this is, this is a real low point. It's a low point for the saints. But you'll notice that there's not a doom and gloom mentality coming from God through the prophet. It's, it's still planting those seeds of hope. It's giving them something to fight on. To, to attain design, it will be redeemed in mine own due time. Verse 19, and if any man shall seek to build up himself and seeketh not my counsel, he shall not have no power, and his folly shall be made manifest. I think Brother Brigham had a few people specifically in mind there when, he's, a lot of when he's getting that, that revelation. They're build themselves up, that's for sure, and and even, the, even those who've, uh, like Strang and others who've apostatized, I mean, uh, they, they don't yet know that Lyman White is going to go completely off the rails, but he's certainly not with them. And so I, it, it's interesting how often, even though God continually says, only my prophet can lead my church, how often people say, well, what about in this instance? Well, no, I, there's no other instance. The prophet leads the church. Well, but what if he's wrong? But I don't think you've heard the first part, and that's the prophet leads the church. And 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 I think that's incumbent upon us as disciples is that we all have different social ideas, political ideas, uh, you know, we, we all have different backgrounds, we, we come from different cultures all over the world, and, and oftentimes what causes us to follow a prophet or not is whether or not that prophet is saying what we already believe. Yeah. But the problem is if you only follow a prophet when they're saying what you already what believe, well, then you don't need a prophet, right? The whole point of the prophet is to tell you something that you wouldn't otherwise believe. You don't need a prophet to tell you to stay in Jerusalem because you were always going to stay in Jerusalem. A prophet tells you to leave Jerusalem, and that's certainly the, the reality of what Brigham Young is doing here. He is telling these people to, to walk 1,400 miles to a, a, to a wilderness and that their things are going to be fine. Well, that's a for people who thought it was going to be an, a pleasure cruise, having gone across Iowa, they realized that it's not. And 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 I think the Lord really has to take the time to, to remind them, Zion is not just a place. Zion is the people that are going to make that place. Absolutely. It's beautiful. And he gives, he gives 
a whole section from from verse 20 through verse 30 of some very, very specific things that they need to stop doing and some things they need to start doing. Stop stealing things, stop being drunk. And (laughs) then then he follows that, that whole section of counsel, prophetic counsel, he follows that up in verse 31 by saying, my people must be tried in all things that they may be prepared to receive the glory that I have for them even the glory of Zion. And he that will not bear chastisement is not worthy of my kingdom. Well, my goodness, this people is, this is yeah. a refiner's fire for well, them. And I, I feel like that's one of my favorite verses in all of the Doctrine and Covenants, actually, because it there is, an uh, unfortunately, a, 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 a cultural untruth that exists for many Latter-day Saints, certainly in the, in the Western world, and that is this idea that if only we are righteous, then bad things won't happen to us. And, and, and there are reasons for that. I mean, that's certainly an aspect of Protestantism in the world that we're around, that, you know, God's will is always being done. And, and you even hear Latter-day Saints say things, you know, not realizing that it's not really our doctrine, that when, when something happens, you'll hear a Latter-day Saint say, well, we know that every single thing happens for a reason. Um, well, sometimes not, right? I mean, the, the reason is because you're in a world that's that's a mortal world that you chose to come here, and there are at times horrific things that happen, but believing that God is simply inflicting those on everyone is just it's not the case. But what is the reality that this mortality is designed to refine people, to bring them to become a Zion people? And, and that's hard because uh, it's easy to check the box and say, as long as I'm doing what's right, then bad things won't happen to me. And there's just no evidence of that in the scriptures, by the way. I mean, everyone who's checking boxes in the scriptures is constantly, uh, <laughs> constantly having terrible things happen. Notice in verse 32, he then goes on to say, let him that is ignorant learn wisdom by humbling himself and turning to the world for answers, right? Wait, he didn't say that. Not to the world. He said, <laughs> calling upon the Lord his God that his eyes may be opened, that he may see, and his ears open, that he may hear. And Garrett, what you're talking about, this idea, some of these false notions, these false notions weren't given to us by God. These, these right. are created by the world's opinions and, and, and uh, the philosophies of men, so to speak. I love the fact that here the invitation is, go to God, turn, turn heavenward, be humble. Um, notice verse 33, my spirit is sent forth into the world to enlighten the humble and contrite unto the condemnation of the ungodly. Then towards the end here, Brother Brigham gets this revelation from the Lord regarding uh, Joseph and some of the things that have happened. Verse 38, which foundation he, speaking of Joseph, did lay and was faithful, and I took him to myself. Many have marveled because of his death, but it was needful that he should seal his testimony with his blood, that he might be honored and the wicked might be condemned. And then to finish it off, verse 41 and 42, now therefore hearken, O ye people of my church and ye elders, listen together. You have received my kingdom. Be diligent in keeping all my commandments, lest judgments come upon you and your faith fail you and your enemies triumph over you. So no more at present. Amen and amen. I love the fact that DNC 136 demonstrates Brigham Young in his prophetic mantle as a prophet speaking the words of the Lord, and that all of us can make that same recommitment to 
follow the covenants that we have already entered into in order to come closer to God. In closing, just know that God is in his heavens. He will hear and answer all prayers, maybe not the way we think he should answer them, but he will answer them according to his own time and according to his own purposes. Know that he lives, know that he loves you, and we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.